We're still giving away two boxes of books per episode, one to a Patreon supporter and one to a PayPal supporter. Slightly bigger box of books for the Patreon supporter. So if you listen to the end of this episode, you will find out who the two winners are. That was a false question. That he was just like, yeah. shut it down. Damn, that was a hard question. Yeah. stupid bloody painting. I've <laughs> <coughs> uh, forgotten how to soft soap the uh, guests, haven't I? <laughs> soft soap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds very nice. Old old term, old term, don't worry. Um, (laughs) Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, You alright, Josie? I'm good, especially because you just introduced me to the phrase, soft soap the guests. Yeah, yeah, it just, you know, just relaxes them a little bit and uh, then they get ready. But as I was explaining, I don't soft soap them as well. I pumice. It's an absolute disaster. (laughs) Listen, in this life we need the pumice and the soft soap. That is, that's your, your bread and roses. <laughs> exactly. That's very nice. Uh, we're joined by a uh, uh, painter, author and broadcaster. And broadcaster. The more painter, author actually, than broadcaster, uh, Raul Martinez, who has... We're going to get straight on to your book, actually, <clears throat> because uh, the book at Canongate is Creating Freedom. And I first saw you talk about it with Brian Eno. Yep. which was a very entertaining uh, evening, particularly because Brian Eno every now and again went, I better talk a little bit more because I'm one of the reasons people bought tickets. <laughs> so even though he actually just wanted to kind of just ask questions, he then had to do 10 minutes in the middle going, anyway, as Brian Eno... <laughs> and it was great. Um, Did you ever feel tempted to go, he knows what he's talking about because that is all I would do if I ever got to meet him. No, because not impressed. Right, Brian Eno off the <laughs> list of people who's going to interview you for your uh, your publisher's going to be furious. I, I don't, I, I don't have a publisher. I don't have a book. So you meant to have done a book, though, aren't you? I was meant to, have, but we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, I've just found out my deadline's a month earlier than I thought. That Uh-oh. doesn't bode well. So your book, though, well, uh, is. It, well, the started. Let's talk about the starting point of it. Basically, <clears throat> it was when you were still at school and you argue. You were having an argument with someone uh, about the nature of religion. So you can give it a little bit of background to that. Right. Okay. So I was about thirteen years old. I was on the way home from school and I was having a debate with a mate of mine. He was very religious. I wasn't, and he was trying to convince me that you know the right thing to do was to believe in God and follow his particular faith. And I was pretty sure he was wrong. And it seemed to me that his beliefs were arbitrary. They were a product of his particular family influences. Um, And to make my point, I came up with a little thought experiment. And I said to him, well, look, imagine if you'd been born in another family, a different set of influences, a different religion. Right now, you'd be defending that religion instead of your current one. Um, So don't you see that your beliefs are arbitrary? Don't you see that... (laughs) Um, it's just random that you happen to be, you know, making the point that you're making. And, okay, it didn't really have an effect on him, but the argument stuck with me and I realised the very same argument applied to my own beliefs. That what I was saying and my own habits and what I considered normal was merely a product of my familial influences, my society, and a particular point in history I'd been born, etc., etc. And so that had a massive impact on me. Um, And it's a simple idea, but the more I thought about it, the more I felt the ramifications are huge in terms of our personal autonomy, our our ideas about freedom, and even going beyond that, notions of democracy and politics. Um, So, yeah, it kind of set me on a course, this little debate, um, which I guess changed my life and and got me reading a lot. Well, you said now it's, you know, 20 years later Mm -hmm. and you've written the book, 
So is this really? Is this been twenty years? Just like twenty years of taking notes since the age of thirteen to understand why you are. Because in some ways, you were in the discussion I saw. There's almost a point where a certain idea of free will does get removed. Not necessarily the uh, free will where it's quite often looked at as a neuroscientific point of view in terms of the actual physical apparatus, but actually that free will is removed by all of the cultural experiences that you have that you are an accumulation of those that have loved you and shouted at you it all depends on how you define free will um i think a, a very common understanding of free will is incoherent it just doesn't make sense um if we don't create ourselves and we clearly don't um then the argument goes we can't truly be responsible for who we are and the response is often well yeah but we still make choices come on we all make choices but of course we make choices with a brain that we didn't choose and a choice to change ourselves will ultimately be reducible to how we already are as a result of genes and experience we might want to change in a particular way but the way in which we want to change is still reducible to you know prior events and, and influences so that sense of being truly and ultimately responsible for who we are and what we do, I think that doesn't make sense and we can remove that um, as a coherent notion. But then there are other notions of freedom which are still extremely valuable and attainable and important and that's what I argue for in the book. So it's something we talked about before which is, uh, sorry, Jace just gave me a, a facial gesture. No. It was surprise and wonder. What was my, no, my facial gesture was going to be which are All right. <laughs> what I meant was like I, I also was just listening and thinking about what you were saying. See, I get because told I was... off because sometimes people don't realise you're listening and thinking. And people oh. go, oh, Robin Ince was talking and not letting Josie talk. And I am, <laughs> but sometimes you're listening and thinking. Yeah, and also so we some... need to add a sound effect. <laughs> this kind of like low, maybe Brian Eno can do it. Yeah, some kind okay. of hum so the audience know that rather than me holding my hand over your mouth, you're going... <laughs> I'm contemplating because I'm a little bit deeper than Robin, who is merely shallow. Can I just say that Robin just shut me out of the room while he recorded that bit and I was clamouring to get back in so that I could desperately say that all he was doing was talking over me this whole time. And can I just say that Josie doesn't even exist? I do her voice. I just did it then. And so when you're listening and you think I'm interrupting Josie, Josie's a figment of my imagination that I'm forcing into your imagination as well. I'm like the I'm like the ventriloquist puppet and like the ventriloquist puppet swore it wasn't me. That's you're you. quite right, I am. So <laughs> That came full circles. It's back to freedom. You're having a, you know. This is the thing I was going to say. But like, surely if you choose, if you're trying to change yourself, even though you're trapped within the parameters of what you are, things that you seek out will influence you in ways that are unexpected. And the more you do certain things, they do leave their mark on you in ways that are nothing to do with your upbringing. Your you know, so right. the life you choose for yourself does influence you. Of course. But the way Thanks. <laughs> but the way in which you want to change, so the choices that you make will be a product of how you are at a given point. Of course. And then, of course, random things will happen to you, which will have a huge impact. Some of them might be really negative or others really positive. Yeah. But because they're random, again, you can't take responsibility for those and the impact they have on you. Okay. Um, but yeah. we can talk about... It's a no, I understand. It's, for a lot of people, it seems a very shocking idea initially. 
No, I think See, I'm it not makes sure it is. Me, but... Yeah, I, I kind of, I think it's a brilliant idea, and I think it's very useful because it's something we talked about the other week, which is I do find, even though check your privilege is an overused, uh, sometimes argument just to, you know, I oh, will shut this person up by saying, but uh, actually, I think it is, uh, has, is a very pragmatically useful thing for anyone to go hang on a minute what have i got what am i and which i think comes in partly to what creating freedom is about Mm -hmm. why do i have certain things that i have why do i have certain whether they are you know intellectual advantages disadvantages social and and then once you do that even though it's disconcerting because you go oh i am luckier than everyone else so no wonder i get to do a podcast with josie long (laughs) and you know but that uh but that so that that can i think because i know one of your friends God was really kind of upset when he read you, but didn't you say there was one person who basically said after they read that went, "Well, this is true. I might as well kill myself." Yeah, yeah, because I think it's a bit like telling someone who's been taught that morality and meaning flows from the existence of God, and then you challenge the existence of God, and they're like, "Well, why should I be good? And what's the point of anything?" If you conflate two things, if you associate two things for long enough, and then someone says, "Well, one of them's not real," you assume the other thing can't be real either. But of course, that's just because it's a habit. You lean on a cane long enough and you think you need it. But you, you can have meaning, you can have um, beauty and all kinds of things without good and without that notion of free will. Um, but just interestingly, I think it's becoming... I mean, a common response is, that, oh, it's been debated for centuries. Um, okay, so you're, you've written about it and you've got your perspective, but clearly it's just going to go on forever. So it's inconclusive and people go back to their lives. But I think the rise of neuroscience has changed debate because suddenly we're just getting this mountain of empirical data, um, which is really all on one, falls all on one side of the argument. There's literally not a single scientific finding that I'm aware of that supports the notion of free will, even though it's it's so prevalent and, and we believe in it. Um, and oh, it no. Oh, no. <laughs> and it, but it's interesting, though, in philosophy... The consensus, well, there's not a consensus view, but probably the majority view is a kind of compatibilist view that, yeah, the universe is probably deterministic, but actually we still have a very valuable form of free will within that. But the interesting thing is philosophers can't agree on what a good argument for that is. There's not a single argument. So what they do, each philosopher comes up with their own particular argument and picks holes in all the other ones who are arguing for compatibilism. Um, But because the arguments aren't very good, there's no consensus. Um, but so if we ignore philosophy and we look at science and there is a consensus and I think and it's becoming clearer and clearer well David Eagleman discusses that doesn't he in, mm-hmm. his, in his last book about the, the brain which I think is just called The Brain based on his TV series yeah. where he says that as a, as a whole free will is the, 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 the main bulk of it is an illusion but within that illusion is something which then creates a more random pattern so there is like one machine underneath it but as it then bounces the balls that still creates some random pattern which gives you a certain level of freedom. So you haven't lost all your freedom. It, I don't... Randomness doesn't give freedom. What it does is it might undermine... Well, I suppose random options, determinism. which are... Uh, that you, your options can be... It's still not... It's not as deterministically defined, I think. Yeah, so he might... He might I haven't actually... I've read other things that he said about free will and he seems to largely be against it, the, the kind of the common view. Um... But I think it's two things to say. One is to undermine the idea of determinism. But we can get... Even if the universe isn't deterministic, even if it's indeterministic, that doesn't help at all with the free will question. I don't think how it changes it at all. Because um, then you just have randomness. Like, oh, my arm just moves. 
because of a random event, you know, that couldn't have been predicted. That doesn't make me freer because I didn't choose for it to move. Um, so either See, way- that bit scares me because then when I think of all those experiments, that even when I just saw your arm move, but in fact, your brain, long before you had decided to move your arm, apparently was going to move your arm in that way. Those experiments I find right. particularly... Uh, Hang on, tell me more about that. Well, this is uh, that... that the Libet God, experiment. Yeah, the Libet yeah. experiment, where uh, he um, basically... In, and I don't know if it's about the monitoring as well. I'm kind of confused about... Which is, um, when you appear to choose to do something, <clears throat> in fact, the uh, when you monitor that decision occurred before you are aware of making the decision. Is that it's, a correct way? Do you say it's a fair way of saying Before it? you're conscious that you're going to let's say, move your finger, they can see from uh, the kind of electrical um, impulses in your brain that you're going to do it. So they know before you do from observing, yeah. So your your consciousness lags behind your unconscious, unconscious yeah. behaviour. So in other words, that then even that would include all the words you just said had in fact something, some weird consciousless homunculus had already planned that out. I'm into it. Whatever, whatever it is, it's it's doing a great job. I think you can I kill agree. again and feel happier about it. <laughs> also, it's faster than me, so fair play to it. Whatever <laughs> is inside, you're like brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> um, gosh, but then that doesn't frighten me in the slightest because I just feel like, well, that's all part of the same brain. Just because your consciousness is a little bit slow, that doesn't it doesn't frighten me. I don't. It shouldn't. Why. It's like saying like. Well, I kicked a football with my leg and then I caught it with my hand later. Like, the leg and the hand are still part of the same body. Who cares? Also, you don't know what you're going to say a lot of the time. That that idea that you're always conscious, that's what I think is weird. When you're having a conversation, like, I'm not, obviously, your listeners will make the, know this immediately. I'm not <laughs> thinking about this going, here are my words coming out, what am I going to say? Most times that you're talking, there is not a little delay that says, now I'm going to say this. Yeah, that's, I think, how I'm going to reply to Josie. What was that study about comedians that we both did where they made us do just a minute under a oh, brain Oh, that was uh, the U- UCL where we went into uh, uh, MRI and you had to do 30 seconds of impro. They, they would, uh, an idea with, did, it, did they say it or did it flash up? I can't it remember flashed which it up. was. And when I did it, I didn't, I don't think I was very funny because at the end of it they went, we had Joe Lice in the other day. He was amazing. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, he's amazing. He's brilliant. But I think even I've said this on this podcast before, but, you know, let it be known that I think it's wonderful. <laughs> but I think there's also a difference there, which is you're not meant to be necessarily being, it's a different thing once you remove the audience. So what it was, we are like, they had to do 30 seconds rather than a minute because to have the uh, control group, people who aren't comedians or performers or public speakers can't talk for a minute if you just say, Jacob's cream crackers, whereas we can just bleh, bleh, bleh about it. Right. But because there's no observer, apart from magnets... <laughs> You don't feel, really got to titillate those magnets with my clever turn of phrase. We uh, uh, did a little documentary when I went inside it. So uh, I think you can see that on the, uh, if you go onto the Cosmic Shambles site, there is a film of me attempting to do just a minute inside uh, an MRI. Describe the point of the experiment. Well, it was to discover if there was something uh, physically different in the behaviour of the comedians, but I think it was in some ways about that idea, the one that always gets talked about, the hypothalamus of the uh, um, taxi driver. I think it's the hypothalamus, mm-hmm. isn't it, which is larger because... Uh, talks they, and drive. 
No, just because they need to know used to be for the knowledge. So that will then change again because now the knowledge has been replaced more often than not by, by sat nav. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So all it means now is that taxi drivers have a slightly larger sat nav than people who drive <laughs> less often, which isn't nearly as impressive. So well I'll tell you what we will get back to uh pragmatically, I suppose that's what we should get away from, which mm-hmm. is you are a political campaigner. You come from a family of political campaigners as well. I know that all of you kind of work very hard on a lot of different ideas about, you know, about tolerance, about equality, about economic equality. Is that your parents as well? I think we have similar politics, but they've got more involved as we've got more involved. Oh, nice. I think. Oh, is it that way round? I think so, yeah. Um, maybe that's not completely fair. My mother um, volunteered at Friends of the Earth for about four years when I was a kid. Um, but I think we've all become more and more politicised as the years have passed. Yeah. They are. They're, they're, if the Waltons was actually about kind of the Chomskys, imagine it had been the Chomskys. <laughs> oh, they, I'd watch that. Yeah. I'd watch it. <laughs> Good night, no. <laughs> yeah, so Raoul is basically John Boy Chomsky. That's the way I see it. Um, so that, Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm thinking of, obviously we've been talking about what's happening in, in terms of, of politics both in the UK and in, in the US. And I think for some people, seeing a level of what can appear to be fascism within a large number of people than we imagined before, it's you almost start, you know, liberals, uh, socialists, you, you almost talk about, but those people are just fascists. Mm-hmm. And you want to remove the influences. And it's a very easy leap to make. So uh, would you say this book is, in terms of useful of understanding how again how we become the political people that we become and how we can try and change the minds of those people that we believe would do more harm than good yeah that's always a more interesting question to ask isn't it what would it be like to be that person and how did they end up that way then we might actually learn something but it's a more dangerous and threatening question Um, one because it robs us of that immediate sense of moral superiority and outrage um which you know, is very powerful and kind of quite intoxicating um, and actually quite galvanising. It gets you on the streets, that kind of that anger and righteousness. Um, but the deeper question, if you really want to change society and improve society, is to understand how the hell did we get in this situation? H- how could it ever seem a good idea to anyone? I mean, tens of millions of women voted for Trump. How? How did, after, you know, it's not, he wasn't hiding who he was. It was quite clear. Mm. Um and yet clearly there are reasons for every action, for every form of behaviour, there are reasons. So yes, trying to extend empathy in, into every uh, situation, um, not to kind of minimise our capacity to fight against something bad. I don't think that's necessarily what follows, but always, always to try and understand and to understand that had we had those influences, been in that situation, lived that person's life, we'd have done the same thing. We could have been Donald Trump, unfortunately. Um, but what really interests me about the whole idea of responsibility and homing in on that and challenging kind of the prevalent ideas about it is I think it sits, assumptions about responsibility sit right at the heart of the division between left-wing politics and right-wing politics. Um, I think right-wing politics really rests on the assumption that people can be blamed or praised ultimately for what they do. So if you're at the top of society, if you're a billionaire, it's because you're awesome and you really deserve it. If you're that, if you're a homeless person on the street, didn't, didn't work hard enough, you've made the wrong choices, and you know things like social welfare, um, efforts to redistribute wealth, that's going counter to a deeper sense of justice, which is that people get what they deserve. And actually, social psychologists have done all kinds of really fascinating studies 
showing correlations between, for example, belief in a just world. They have something called a just world scale to find out how strongly you believe that in the end outcomes are just. And if you score highly on this scale, you're much more likely to be right-wing, you're much more likely to be a supporter of Trump um, and exhibit authoritarian um, elements in your personality. And this also correlates with your strength of belief and responsibility. So, of course, the two overlap. So the the stronger your belief in the idea that we are truly responsible for what we do, um, the more likely you are to blame victims, advocate harsher punishments, and believe the world is kind of fair and just. Um, So I think for these reasons, it's a deeply political idea. And I kind of, one of my motivations is I want to kind of take this issue um, out of the hands of the philosophers where it's sat for so long and you've had endless debate and say this is for those concerned with political equality. This is a political issue um, and should really lie at the heart of a lot of the arguments for a fairer, just society. Because we've got the science and the logic on our side. Um, and we should make use of that. And, and That's very funny that, like, because I think at the heart of, like, left-wing, left-wing politics is um, wanting the world to be more just. And then if you think that your opponents are like, guys, that's already just. Yeah. And that, and, or that that at some root level is what they're operating on unconsciously or without, you know, without really challenging it. I suppose it's not something I've thought of that much that right when people are like, oh, why are you... Why are you hassling about this? It's already just. Yeah. If that's what they, you know, if that's one of their deeply held beliefs. I I got recommended a book, which I still haven't read, by the comedian Nick Doody, mm. who's a great guy, a great comedian, called The Righteous Mind. Have you read that? Oh, yeah, I'm I've reading it. I haven't read it yet. It's, what do you um, think? Hayd. It's a Jonathan Yeah, Jonathan Hayd, yeah. yeah. I, I started it, and I liked it, and then I went away and left it at home like a dickhead. Um, It, it seems to be, like... I sound like an idiot if I haven't finished reading it, but it seems really interesting because it's about the fact that, you know, people hold their beliefs for so many different deeply held reasons and about how different personality types go towards different things. And, and it's again, it's about trying to change people's minds who disagree with you or trying to understand people better who disagree with you. And it's something that I feel I've been preoccupied by but for the past year or so, but I find it very difficult because my personality type after a while is like, ah, well, fuck them though, you know? And I feel yeah. like I'm not... I'm not tolerant enough at the end of it to be able to be like, cool, these Nazis, they're just, you know. I think it's been, but yeah, on the book, I think it's really good. It's really interesting. I think he goes too far with it. And I think there's some political naivety. Oh, what do you mean? Um, There's not enough of an appreciation of the dynamics of power. And the, the examples he gives in the book um, to try and demonstrate. He kind of bends over backwards to try and say, yeah, look at these people who are generally written off as immoral or having offensive views. Actually, there's an internal logic to their morality, and we should appreciate that. Yes, but that's not the same thing as saying um, that what the way they're behaving... Isn't obtuse and isn't... Isn't actually causing immense suffering and, and shouldn't be profoundly challenged. That... He goes too far in the direction of saying almost relativism, cultural relativism and subjectivism. Right. Um, for example, he, he talks about a trip to India where um, he said when he first got there, the, the role of women he found offensive and the way people treated their servants and the kind of caste system. But after a while, you know, he kind of got used to it and um, he saw that, oh, there was 
elements of value within certain things. He, he was treated very well, basically. He was put up by a university there. He had his own servant. And he felt uncomfortable initially, but then got very comfortable. But, I mean, fair enough, but it doesn't... It seems to me to still leave untouched the fact that a caste system is pretty horrendous and that women have very few rights. It's incredibly patriarchal in that society and that inequality is still a massive issue. And getting to the head of someone isn't the same thing as getting rid of a kind of uh, more objective indicators, um, I think, for right and wrong. I think it goes too far in that direction. Um, but anyway. So That's great line by uh, Rick Roderick, who's one of my favourite. He was a Texan philosophy lecturer. Ha! And uh, in one of them, he says, great line, he just goes, now slaves' life had meaning. It was a terrible meaning, but it had meaning. And I think that comes into it sometimes as well, which is the more freedom that you have, you kind of go, oh, what is it? it's, it's Sartre, isn't it? Really going, ah, what do we do? Um, and that you might go, oh, no, 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 but the person who's my butler is, who actually, by the way, is rubbish, Josie. I'm getting rid of them. But the, uh, the person. <laughs> Poor fun. Yeah, I, I would never, I think that that's actually, it's almost like a definition of, uh, of middle classness. Middle classness is the constant embarrassment of anyone who is meant to be subservient to you in in different scenarios and is uh, tidying the hotel room uh, before you, you know, even though they're there for a few days, think, I better make the bed. I know there's (laughs) someone who comes in to make the bed, but how embarrassing to make them make the bed. And, uh, yeah, it's a ridiculous situation. But that's that bit of becoming used to... Well, I wanted to actually get on to your influences from you. I think one of the first times I met you, uh, we talked about Howard Zinn. Right. And Howard Zinn, I think, in the UK is not particularly well known, mm-hmm. whereas in, in the US, because of the people's history of the United States, which is a, an incredible history book mm. because it is a history book from the perspective of the people, not the generals and the masters yeah. as such. Oh, there's that great Howard Zinn article that is really useful and helpful at the moment that's like to be hopeful in dark times. It's not foolish naivety. It's understanding that the history of human endeavor is also one of oh, i love that quote. yeah it's amazing it's in the book yeah it's, yeah, it's amazing and and simply in, in you know in such a shit society at a shit time trying to simply living a life where you're attempting to fight for something better is a marvelous achievement in itself even if the outcomes always don't uh, end up where you want them to be yeah um, that's like um it's like the Kurt Vonnegut book of like <gasps> be a saint you'll definitely fail but what else are you gonna do bye i'm dead now <laughs> This um, was the one set of recordings we're going to try and get through without mentioning without Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut. We've really got, we yeah, people mean... are really noticing the heavy are Vonnegut. They? No, not as a complaining way, but they have noticed yeah, that. They're not uh, giving the fans what they don't... want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, you were talking about Howard Zinn and you. Um... Yeah, I just wondered where, where do you think people uh, should start? Because, I mean, he has. I would actually say the People's History of the United States of America may not be the most useful one for uh, a lot of people in the UK to start with. Mm-hmm. Something like the selection of essays in power, but you might have a, a different choice. For Zinn, yeah. particularly. I'd say read at least the first chapter of Other People's History. We actually talk specifically about his view of history and that you can never be objective in the telling of history. In academia, generally, you can't be objective. And I think it's so beautiful how he challenges it in such a common-sense way. And he says, look, we all have biases. Now, here are my biases. I happen to be against racism, sexism, war, and that's going to inform the way I approach history. It's going gonna, it's gonna to inform the stories that I want to tell. And other people have other biases. But, of course, uh, other historians don't come out with their biases. They, they try to cultivate the appearance of objectivity. It would be so nice if everyone at the start of everything was like, by the way, guys, I need to tell you, this is what I believe, so that's going to inform this yeah. anyway. Yeah. And then you wouldn't ever have to pick it out. I'm a white supremacist. Let's just get that out in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I um, 
Yeah, uh, that one of my least favourite things with interacting with people online is people presuming that they are objective. It's the worst thing in the world to be like, I'm actually a disengaged observer to this political issue, so let me just tell you a thing or two. And you're like, you definitely aren't, because none of us are. We're all in this mire. <laughs> it's an interesting it. thing, isn't it? Because I think this has particularly shown, because everything's become so extreme now to those who, who, who are watching mm. in terms of what is believed to be true by different mm -hmm. groups of people. It's, yeah. And that's where I sometimes get worried that there almost isn't time to be doubtful. That for the time being, to to fight more for a, a tolerance that had been presumed to just become, you know, a kind of destiny, we might have to be, you know, a little bit intolerant. Because that's one of the hardest things where people go, oh, oh, I see you preach tolerance, but you're very intolerant to the intolerant. And you go, well, oh, hang on a minute, I've got to get out clause for this one. Yeah. But that, so, again, looking at creating freedom, looking at that, how do we balance in one way trying to understand why certain people that we believe are aggressive and may well brutalize large numbers of people have time to both go right they understand that they're going to get understanding them but at the same time we can't be so busy in the library checking how we understand them to go oh now they've burnt down more stuff and i haven't finished working out why they are as they are it's oh the now the library's on fire it's the <laughs> age-old debate of do you punch a nazi in the face the age-old debate of our times. No, sorry, I'm just fucking about. Um, I should never have let you watch the Screen Actors Guild the other day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, well, it is the age-old. It is a massively um, fundamental issue uh, because every decision that we make has to be made knowing that tomorrow we might learn something which invalidates our reasons for making that decision. Mm. Um, so it's a tension there. And there's that great Bertram Russell quote about... Um, uh, you know, reasonable people tend to be far more unsure about whether they should act on what they believe, and they're aware of their their possible um, faults and failures. Whereas, you know, the idiots out there seem to have no doubts, and you know, willing to kill and die for um, their beliefs without even looking for evidence. So there is that tension, and action is hugely important. You know, it's not understanding isn't enough; it's not an end in itself, um, but it's about trying to guide your action in ways which will realize your deepest values and so it's just it's ongoing you need both and to some extent within the movement and just within society there is a division of labor when it comes to this um we depend on some people to to get out there journalists and find things out for us and condense information scientists to go and do research um and yeah, I mean, there's no formula for it. It's this kind of battle to find the right sources, the right information, have an open mind, but not paralyze ourselves. Um, it's, you know, at points, you know, we're living through one of them right now. Things get so extreme that, yeah, you just, you have to say, well, we have to act, we have to stand up, and it might not be the perfect response, but fuck's sake, we, we have to resist. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's an answer to it apart from always do both, you know. There's a good bit in um, in Hope in the Dark, which I just love it so much. I love Rebecca Solnit so much. Oh, I've got a book for you. Oh, which one? It's all about walking, generally. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah. I've been like reading. Walking. I gave you a swimming one. I thought I'd give you a walking one. Next one, cycling, oh, and then you can do that. To me. Yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been reading men explain things to me. It's great. Although it's funny because it's been so influential. You read it, you're like, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, you did this. Sorry, sorry. But anyway, sorry. There's a bit in Hope in the Dark where she talks about. 
unexpected shifts in allegiances. Like she talks about uh, green activists becoming working in partnership with ranchers who used to be their old enemies and about how they used to always demonstrate against the ranchers because they were like, oh, look at the terrible farming. And then they both kind of team up against big agriculture and stuff like that and about how, like, I feel like this was relevant when I started, but my it was my unconscious brain started before my brain started. Um, but basically about how you need to be flexible enough to go, uh, yes, I really believe in these deeply held things, but... I can't write this person off. Full stop is my energy. The my energy, my enemy. The um, the lays of the land have shifted, yeah. and now we must form an allegiance to fight the new enemy, etc. That is relevant. Frankly, yeah, well, it's it? quite a common thing, isn't it? As well, which is now people will get written off because they was there's one thing that didn't make the tick box. So oh, they yeah. stand for lots of things mm, that you agree mm. with. But, oh, you failed there. Um, I think it's a, sometimes this a problem on the left, which huge is problem. you go, um, oh, the, you know, here is, I, I think that's why um, more kind of, you know, leftish or liberal governments often fail, is because people really imagine they're going to do stuff, and by the end of the four or five years, there'll be a new utopia, and then they go, there isn't a new utopia, it isn't raining humbugs, the whole thing's been a disaster, let's get the fascists back in again. But that's again what, oh, sorry. That's again what Rebecca Solnit says in Hope in the Dark. She's like, people on the left are like, where's my magic Where's my magic victory that ends all this struggle so I don't have to do any more of this tedious politics stuff and I can go back to just making quilts and it's never going to happen. Yeah. Sorry, I no, got overexcited. It's all right. It's your show. Talk as much as you want. No, no. You're, it, it's more interesting to have you talk. Um, no. No, I mean, I agree. You're both right. I mean, it is a huge issue. I think we really need to lower our threshold for working with people and supporting people because the higher we raise it the kind of the purer we may feel and the less effective we become as a movement um there is a tendency to just call out anyone you know we, we agree on 90 percent and that but that 10 percent you fucking arsehole i'm gonna mm. you know write you off because of that and even just on a kind of larger scale trying to actually take power within a country um through a party political vehicle i think that's happening now with corbyn um there has been uh, in certain quarters, a, a drop in support for him. Um, from people who I know share 90% in common, maybe more than that, maybe 95, but they're really fucked off about one or two issues, and that's enough to go, hmm, don't know, maybe Lib Dems, I don't know, might go to the Greens now. A lot of that's Brexit, though, as well. I it, think a lot of it, it is Brexit, Brexit, and a lot of it is, I think, it's not down to whether they agree with him or not. It's down to the fact that they really don't believe it's a possibility of him being able to win an election. And I think it may well, you know, it becomes about that side of it. We must get on to art, yes. though, as well. I want to, because uh, we've nearly run out of time. Uh, the book that I've been reading recently is The Bride and the Bachelors, okay. which is, it's got more about Robert Rauschenberg, and I keep oh, banging amazing. on about Robert Rauschenberg because I went to see uh, his um, brilliant... Um, exhibition at the Tate Modern. You uh, are a painter. That's the main area of art that you deal in. That's true. Um, is it is it abstracts or is it representatives? I think it's quite representative, actually. He's at the National Portrait Gallery. They expect it to be reasonably representative. That <laughs> doesn't even look like a nose. But um, I wondered, within the world of art, where who were the influences in terms of trying to combine, if you do, 
both the your artistic vision and being able to put that also to some kind of vision of, of society as well. Do you find that's an important part or can be an important part of an artist's work? Because I think with Robert Rauschenberg, even though it might not look overtly political, just the fact that he wanted it to come from joy and to mm-hmm. engender joy and to then also work with a lot of different people on a lot of different projects, that idea of creating different communities, that seems to mean that it becomes a lot more than just that canvas there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I struggled with this question when I was younger. Um, I, I love to paint, and I I also cared about the way the world was and want to try and improve the world in some way with the work that I did. And, and at points, I tried to combine the two in uh, quite a direct uh, sense. But I always struggled. I don't know, oil painting, representative painting, it, it always seemed a bit forced to try and actually kind of crowbar in my take on the world and how I think. It, the medium didn't lend itself to that. That's why I ended up trying to make a film and then write a book so I just want to say what I want to say mm. but in another sense I think painting is always if you aim for beauty your notion your particular understanding of beauty that in itself is a political act to try and um, put that into the world because it has an effect it, it's, commu- it's communicating something you're trying to get in touch um, with that place in, in, in a human being and raise it to the surface if you like as you're doing it as an artist yourself in the process you're trying to get in touch with I don't know with me it's kind of uh, how do you describe it I don't know the, the, the innocent the peaceful the, um, the kind of magical deepest part of yourself and also it's, it's intrinsically anti-capitalist because it's not about money right there. yeah simply by caring about something so deeply that you spend weeks on it it's very anti-capitalist yeah. it's wasteful what are you doing you're just creating beauty yeah as you see it that's and not good enough properly commodify that because people can see that and feel that feeling for free yeah you know and no one's telling you what to do so you i mean that's you don't get that in our society usually you know for a wage everything is controlled you, know, you don't get to control those conditions but as an artist they've always that's simply their existence poses a little bit of a threat to that kind of hegemonic idea of obedience and conformity you know i want to actually because you mentioned your documentary the lottery of birth and is it in your documentary, because I couldn't remember, that you have the bit about the changing of the American educational system in the early 1970s? Or did I see another documentary? Oh, yeah, that, that's in mine. That, yeah. that is a really interesting... Can you, can you explain a little bit about this was kind of just after a lot of the campus unrest, the Vietnam campus oh, so unrest? to stop creative and critical thought and to, create, to change it. Well, let's find out. Well, let's find out. <laughs> right, so a report was commissioned by something called the Trilateral Commission, um, which I think was funded by uh, a particular billionaire from the States. And a trilateral commission was made up of the leading capitalist nations, um, Japan, the US, and Western Europe. And the report was entitled The Governability of Democracies. And as part of it, they were trying to understand what had given rise to the massive social movements of the 60s, um, which obviously, uh, from the point of view of elites, is very threatening. Um, and one of the conclusions they reached was it was the product of too much democracy in society. Um, and this was partly down to the raised expectations of many marginalised groups within society, and they literally listed them. Chicanos, they called them, um, blacks, women. And one of the conclusions which followed from that was, well... Either we need to kind of change the work which is available in society or we need to lower the job expectations of the population. And basically, 
impoverish the education system. They didn't choose option A then. Apparently not. And this wasn't just, I think it's worth pointing out, it wasn't a kind of a marginal institution, this. The following the Carter administration, um, the senior positions in that government, including Carter, all came from the Trilateral Commission. They were all members and part of it. Um, Wow, Jimmy Carter? Yeah. That's disappointing. Yeah. I think as somebody who's quite lazy... Um, you go, I, I hear he was all right, so I won't look into it. Yeah. But how all right can you be? That's the trouble yeah, when, when you have a system that's, uh, yeah. That's the, I found that fascinating. That that was, mm. and I, I thought, because it's a very interesting documentary, some very interesting people on it as well. Um, but then my question would be, how do you explain the uh, resurgence of protest in the last few years? Does that mean that the education system has changed? Does that mean people's access to educating tools has changed? Like, do you think that things like social media are helping people think critically or creatively? Or do you, like, what do you think is influencing Not people? think critically. Well, you say that, but like... No, I don't think on either side. I'm sorry, I, I'm going to be... But I reckon that it's no. something I remember from student politics as well. There's a lot of things that I did marches on that I thought, do you know what? I hadn't done the fucking reading at all. And that bloke, all that, you know. So yeah. I think there's... Uh, yeah, but, but anyway, sorry. Think, no, but Twitter, like you've, you've been talking today about like, oh, checking my privilege and stuff like that. Like I feel like social media has been an influence on you in changing the manner that you might kind of engage with it and I definitely think that the people that I've chosen to follow on Twitter I I follow a lot of women of colour that's been my thing that I have done and I feel like it has educated me like every single day about the way that my perspective was and how I think I ought to shift it and what that might mean and stuff like that so I hope that it is helping me think critically. Oh, no, I think it can way. do but I worry about it, the idea of going and now we've all become well no what do you think? So anyway, too in, much in, chat in terms out, right? of that, that oh, idea of um, like, what, why is the more protest? Is it because is it any change in the education? Or um, I don't think it's a change in education. I think the education system is horribly flawed. But I think there are kind of two things. One, I think let's give credit to all the people who've been working really hard for decades, organising, trying to educate through uh, you know informal channels, protesting. Um, you know that makes a difference. People's choices when you if they're good choices, uh, um, informed choices, when you add them together, they make a difference. That was Howard Zinn's great point. It's history is changed by normal people. It's not the kings and queens and presidents. Um, it's a culmination of all our little decisions. Um, so I think, obviously, that's let's give credit to those people. But I think recently, we've seen the mask slip, what I would call the liberal mask on the ugly, unsustainable system of capitalism. And for a long time, people just saw the mask and were like, yeah, the problems in society... But look, got free speech, got democracy. This system is probably the best we can have. And that was a general assumption for a large uh, numbers of the population. Um, I think a deeper analysis reveals actually these deep, bubbling, unfolding crises beneath this mask, which have been there for a long time. We, we can say the environmental crisis, a crisis of democracy, which would have been taken over by concentrated wealth, and the soaring inequality. Um, That's been there for decades, but it's kind of erupted recently in the 2008 um, economic crisis. I think forced a lot of people to reassess their assumptions. Um, And in a way, Donald Trump now is is a more honest representation of the system which we've had for a long time. Um, The Obamas and the Hillary Clintons, in a way, there's another way to look at the situation and say, it's quite dangerous when you have a nice, eloquent black man 
as the face of such a horrible empire, such a horrible unjust system, um, because we take our eye off the ball. We become complacent and we kind of endorse a really superficial form of identity politics. Um, so I think what's happened is a mask has slipped and the crises are there for all to see. The science of climate change is irrefutable. Inequality is you know, increasingly visible. The refugee crisis shows you know, the product of our foreign policy for the last however many decades um, has just culminated in disaster after disaster. So there is a growing awareness because the crises are more visible. Um, so well, we're, we're, we're going to end on the crises being more visible. Uh, <laughs> we run out of time. The, can I just just uh, just the title? Happy What's one in terms of a book that inspired you, teenager or now? What the but apart from creating freedom, obviously, uh, your own book. The uh, what is the uh, book that you think that played a major part in, or at least you know an inspiring part in? I would say Manufacturing Consent by Edward S. Herman and Noam Chomsky. This is so funny. Um, we've, this is the second time that someone's we'll brought that We'll see if we in. get it a third time. Yeah. This is, uh, uh, it, who else said it? Uh, uh, Faye. Yeah, it was Faye Dowker. Faye, Faye yeah, Dowker, yeah. who's a, an excellent she uh, said theoretical that it ruined, physicist. She said it ruined novels for her. Because once she'd sort of seen, it's like they live, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, oh, I I'll can't put the glasses on. It just says consume. <laughs> um, that's what I love about John Carpenter, that he also works with Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. John, Kurt Russell, Republican, John Carpenter, very much Democrat. But I'll tell you what, their, uh, their directors and uh, actors' commentaries on their DVDs are great. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, Raoul. Your book is out from Canongate. It's currently in hardback. It will be coming out in paperback uh, very soon, I would imagine. In May, yep. Um, and uh, thank you also to Patreon supporters who have included Ed Newsom, Phil Forshaw, Barry Hodges, Duncan Hull and... Natasha Wilding, Simon Watkins, Becky Greer, Helen Lillis and the Box of Books winners, I said that so well, are Molly Howard Foster and... And Caroline Mann. No, 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 Katrina Mann. I've got new glasses. They've got special lenses in them. I can't read They're nice. Yeah, Katrina Mann. Nice. Yeah, my wife wanted me to look more like a Brooklyn intellectual. I hope it's working, because nothing else is. Uh, <laughs> so nothing that comes out of my mouth. Thank you. We've relaunched and we've got a new website and that also includes other podcasts as well as this and on top of that blog posts by scientists and authors and comedians and if you want to know more about that, in fact you may be there already but it is cosmicshambles.com. Not long now until the Cosmic Shambles Tour, which is going on in New Zealand and Australia. We're doing six dates out there. Josie, me, Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Lucy Green, loads of special guests as well. If you want to know more about that, then go to CosmicShamblesLive.com. And if you have a spare five minutes to do a short survey, that's another way you can win a box of books this week. If you go to surveymonkey.co.uk slash r slash curious underscore minds, you'll find a short survey there. It'll take you about five minutes to do, and we'll be giving away a box of books to one lucky person who does the survey. That'll be open for the next week or so. Thanks very much, and we'll be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.